0: This week, we're speaking with comedian Andrew Heaton. I've been following his work for some time now, and he's as funny as he is brilliant. If you don't know him yet, you can be Googling his video work right after this conversation. Trust me. This week's show is sponsored by the 70th Annual Emmy Awards telecast. This year, we're toning down the politics. Just kidding. Before my interview with Andrew, I wanted to talk about The Oath, the new comedy coming October 12th. ...follows a very contentious dinner clash between warring political tribes. I think you know them: Conservatives and liberals. Ike Barinholtz is the film's star, director, and writer. And he's tackling the political state of the nation as it is right now. Great timing. Now, let's see about that execution. The teaser trailer just dropped, and... ...not so promising... The bits play up the comic violence, sure, but not the politics. That's coming next, I'm sure, maybe in the longer trailer, if we get one, between now and October 12th. What's the story about? Well, the government is demanding a citizens sign a loyalty oath to the United States. It's a measure that doesn't sit well with the film's liberal characters. Naturally, the subject is bound to come up during Thanksgiving dinner. Sparks fly and soda do fists, at least by the trailer's prediction. The real question here is whether a hard-left comedian like Baron Holtz can make a movie that's fair and balanced in this category. That's clearly what the film's goal is on the surface, right? Let's find the humor in our divided nation and see where our collective humanity intersects. Or, which is another anti-Trump, anti-GOP project from Hollywood, aimed at making blue state America feel better after the 2016 presidential election. Yes, they're still licking their wounds. The film's timing is interesting, of course. We've got a movie coming out just weeks before the midterm elections. This podcast recently interviewed a playwright who, while leaning left on his political Twitter account, delivered a really fair and balanced comedy. The play was called Human Error. It might be showing in a theater near you. If it is, I certainly highly recommend it. Eric Peffinger is the playwright here, and he nailed that balance in his show. I was really charmed and surprised by it. So it can be done by a right-leaning person, a left-leaning person. People across the spectrum can make good art that kind of bridges the gap between the sides. We could certainly use that right about now. The ball's in your court, Mr. Barinholtz. Let's see what you got. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. Here's the hit tweet of the week. Ron Perlman's back, and boy, do we miss him. You know, a while back, he was threatening to stop tweeting about politics and other topics, but he returned with a vengeance. Here, he's responding to Senator John McCain's claim that Senator Rand Paul, his colleague, is working on Putin's behalf. Here we go. We have elected officials brazenly in the light of day committing treason. That is a hanging offense. In God's name, is there no one in our government saying, this cannot stand? The story in question is actually from 2017. So it's not exactly a current event situation. Ron, I think it's time for some deep cleansing breaths.
1: The Medicare annual election period
0: deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online.
2: I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for
0: me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally,
1: Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. My hit tape of the week is
0: Crazy Rich Asians. You now, I usually don't recommend spanking new movies on this podcast, but I'm going to make an exception here. You know, Deep down, I am a horror movie fan. Love horror movies. If i am got some free time, I'm watching a zombie movie. But I've also got soft spot for the rom-coms. Well, at least the good ones, because we haven't seen a good one in quite some time. I think The Big Sick qualifies. It was a very fine quality movie certainly fell into the rom-com range, but it was an independent film. It wasn't a mainstream release. It did really well, but generally speaking, Hollywood is veering away from the rom-coms. They just don't think they can make them anymore. This one's an exception on multiple fronts. It's also getting a ton of press because of the casting. This is an exclusively Asian cast. How often do we see that? You know, I think it's a good thing. I think diversity is wonderful. We see more faces, more cultures, more ideas on the big screen. Representation still matters. But I don't want to talk about this movie from the social justice angle. It's smart, it's funny, and it's very romantic. It deserves your support. The stars here are Constance Wu and Henry Golding. They are wonderful as the couple in question. And there's also something that I thought was interesting about the movie. There's a quiet but very consistent cheering on for Western values. It's embedded in the story. You really can't miss it. And I'm surprised to see it in such technicolor on the big screen. Crazy Rich Asians is formulaic and predictable, and God bless it for both of those. That's exactly how a good rom-com should be. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. And now let's get to the Squeaks Hitcast interview. I've been following Andrew Heaton's comedy career ever since I discovered his econ-pop video series. He would take some pop culture artifact, like the Ghostbusters movie, and then talk about the economic theories behind it, the principles, the free market values. And of course, it was really funny and well-produced, too. Andrew leans libertarian, and his work showcases the glories of the free market. How rare is that in the comedy landscape? He's also brisk and funny. I watch some of his comedy videos again and again just to kind of let all the humor soak in. It's that good. It's that well written. And the the editing, top notch. You know, a lot of times timing is everything with comedy. His videos really showcase pinpoint comic timing. Andrew's also an author. He's a stand-up comedian. And, well, he's got a couple other gigs in the works. I don't want to say too much about them. He kind of hints at them during our conversation. But I think we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more of Andrew Heaton in the weeks to come. If you want to find out more, sign up to his newsletter. You can find that at mightyheaton.com. For now, he dishes about his start of his comedy career and also the challenges that comedians face in the age of Trump. Long story short, it ain't easy. He's going to explain more about that. Here's my chat with the great comedian, Andrew Heaton. Uh, Andrew, thank you for joining the podcast. I'm gonna start Hey, a, good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna start with a question that sounds Barbara Walters-esque, but possibly Ooh. worse. Uh, okay. When did you first realize or suspect that you might be funny, sort of professional level funny?
2: Wow. So professional grade funny. Um, I, you know, I, I I was very much into humor when I was in middle school and high school. I don't, I don't think there was ever an epiphanal moment of, I am the comedic genius that you see before you now. (laughs) Uh, but I, I think there was some point in the last 10 years where I went, Oh, I can get paid for this. Uh, and and i'll uh, I'll meet tons of women. The, the latter did not the latter did not prove to be true. Comedies, you you should really just take up guitar if you're looking to get dates. Uh, but but I have made a life out of it. I am professionally clever. It's on my business card.
0: Gotcha. Excellent. And you're, a, I guess you could say a libertarian leaning comic. A lot of your comedy talks about economic principles and certainly leanings to the right and and free markets. Does it take a while to get that part of your voice up and running, or is that something that just out of the gate? It felt natural. It felt like you, and it just burst out there.
2: Well, I, I think you, you nailed it when you said I'm libertarian-leaning. I would say I'm an independent who's libertarian-leaning. Um, I've I, I fallen to libertarianism quite a lot, but uh, I, I personally don't like the idea of treating political ideologies like religions that we have to uphold. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't feel that I have any, uh, any obligation to you know carry the banner. I'm, I'm open. I, I tell people when I argue with them, I don't want to be wrong any longer than I have to be. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy when people correct me on it. And, uh, but I, but I lean that way. I, I, I definitely, I, I think like a classical liberal mm-hmm. when it comes to heuristics, you know, I, I tend to, um, w- one of my friends and I were discussing Elizabeth Warren a couple of days ago, who he loves and believes is, is sort of a, an American Christ figure. Uh, <laughs> and she, she wanted to introduce a bill that would, uh, I think it was like require all companies that have a billion dollars of sales or more to, um, uh, to stack 40% of their board of directors with employees, which to me, I, I hear that and I'm like, well, that's just authoritarianism with a sweater vest. <laughs> I, I, don't care, I don't care that you have granny glasses. You're still kind of fascist like that because I tend to view things along this axis of you know, cooperative versus um, coerced. Um, I, that's how I tend to see it, which is very libertarian. I mean, that, that is a, a very classical liberal mindset. In terms of, um, you know, working, working the voice um, that you brought up, that, that's happened naturally, and, and I hope is still an ongoing process. Uh, it, you know, I, I, I was very political when I was in, gosh, uh, high, high school all the way up um, through present day, I, I paged at the state capitol when I was in high school. Uh, in, in you know, college, I was very active politically. After college, I worked for Congress. Uh, and then I wound up uh, as a writer on Fox business and uh, and and um, in in between, that was reading books and and uh, at some point struck on to economics, which is fantastic and and very counterintuitive. Um, so so that's come to me. Mm-hmm. I think from from a comedy perspective, uh, I try, I, I don't think it's a good idea to put ideology before humor. Uh, and I think that this is something that um, sometimes it's unavoidable. Uh, like there there are a couple of think tanks that are, Uh, talking to me about making some content for them. Um, And it's their specific goal is we want to get this particular idea out and we want it to be funny. And and in that instance, you know, that's, that, that is the, that's the format. But when you're doing comedy in general, I think it works best Mm -hmm. when you're just setting out to be funny And you happen to have a particular political orientation. That's why The Daily Show has done so remarkably well, uh, because The Daily Show did not sit down with a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of progressive liberals and scheme about how to trick America into being Democrats. They got a bunch of comedians together who were very, very funny, and they made a show and they happened to be liberal. And I I think that's the best way to go about things. Mm -hmm.
0: You mentioned before about arguing and you may have been playful or may have been more serious. The comedy world certainly leans to the left, and we've seen that more aggressively in recent years. Yeah. You, do you kind of mix it up either playfully or maybe less playfully, with some of your comedy peers? I mean, does that, does a subject come up? They know maybe where you stand. They maybe know some of your material. They may beg to differ. Does other sort of sharp elbows thrown in that process?
2: You know, I, um, there, there's a mix, but I'll say overall, uh, that I have been greatly impressed with the comedy community across the board. Um, the, now I, I just moved to Austin, Texas, uh, because I want to live in a city where direct eye contact is not a prelude to murder. Uh, but uh, I had been living in New York City for five years, and then I was in D.C. for two years before that. So I, I was on the East Coast, and in the New York comedy scene— um, we, we can we can kind of broadly break it down into stand-up comedians and improv comedians. Um, improv comedians are all of the theater kids from high school that grew up to become adults. Uh, stand-up comedians are the funny guys that were like cracking jokes during class and then smoking by themselves outside later. They're kind of loners. <laughs> uh, sta- stand-up comedians, um, I- I'd say most of them would say that they are liberal or they're Democrat, but uh, they also tend to be very ardent free speech proponents, both culturally and legally. Uh, so, and when I, when I say that, I mean I think legally we generally agree that you can say whatever you want, but we we kind of live in a culture now where uh, there's just these mobs looking for an excuse to ruin someone's life, and this kind of Orwellian two minute hate that descends in a cloud of Twitter bile. Uh, Stand up comedians don't tend to do that. They they tend to like the idea of. Odd ideas percolating, and and because of that, they're they're more okay with there being rough edges, and they will defend um, other comedians that get slagged. Um, if if somebody comes in, you know, some some grown-up hall monitor comes in and is angry that you use the word space colonization to talk about the forthcoming space force because space colonization implies colonialism and like, like the stand comedians don't put up with that Uh, improv (laughs) improvisers do improvisers tend to be very empathetic, very touchy feely and extremely PC Mm -hmm. Uh, that said, even though they have that bent um, I, for years uh, was kind of worried that I had a target on my back um, given that I I leaned libertarian and for uh, a significant portion of while I was in New York, I was a, a writer on Fox business. Um, and, uh, uh, at one point, um, I think I was taking a class at UCB and I just, I just didn't mention what I did for a living. And whenever I left, they would speculate what I did because they'd say like, well, he's, he's too flamboyantly dressed to be a banker. Maybe he's a gay banker. Uh, you know, Maybe like, like maybe he works on wall street, but he, and, and I, you know, I told him I work for Fox, but I, you know, I'm a good guy. I like, I, you know, I like gay people and everything. And they were like, yeah, we know, like, we know you're a good guy. Don't worry about that. Uh, and, and that's largely been my experience. Um, and, and, and uh, I would say now, uh, I don't argue nearly as much as I used to because I just don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've got a book that I'm working on. It's going to come out in the next couple of years. That's a, a, about, it's either going to be Called "How We Don't Think," why everyone you disagree with sounds like an evil lunatic, or uh, it will be entitled uh, "How to Be a Moderate in America Without Being Killed by a Pitchfork-Wielding Mob." Uh, one of those two things, but it's kind of a how-to book of if if you're one of the people, and I think there's a lot who are prone to taking deep breaths and looking at both sides, and, and you you're just you're not really keen to form this uh, you know monolithic. Two-party group of eternal cosmic evil versus good. Um, it, it, it's tough for us right now. So I, I I don't mind engaging people, but I don't I don't really want to get into an argument with someone unless I think that we're going to come out of it more intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, or or the other person's open to me doing so. Um, and, and there are a lot of people like that. Like my friend that I, that I was talking to about Elizabeth Warren. He's an incredibly intelligent guy. And I and I, when we concluded our conversation, I told him I, I think I gained six IQ points talking to you. Uh, and there, there are definitely people like that. I've got a friend that writes for John Oliver. We meet, you know, a couple times a year, and he, you know, I I lean classical liberal, he leans neoliberal. So there's a lot of overlap, but we have, we have good conversations. But I'll say, like, if I walk into a bar or a comedy club here in Austin and. Uh, someone is, you know, going on a tirade about how corporations are evil, and we should just, you know, murder anyone that takes more than two hundred thousand dollars. And you know, socialism's never actually been implemented. We we need to give it the old college try now that we've got. <laughs> that that kind of person, I like. I'm just like I don't. I'm not sure I can reach you, uh, Don Juan. Um, when he would, Don Juan didn't claim that he could seduce anybody. He claimed he could go into a room and immediately identify who he is capable of seducing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm kind of getting that way with politics where I can pretty quickly ascertain whether or not people that I'm talking to are open to having a conversation and actually exchanging ideas or whether they just want to basically say, um, my team's the good team. The other team's the bad team. And most people just want to do that. And they, they, and I'm, I'm, I find that conversation, tediously boring and asinine uh, and I'm, I'm getting much better at avoiding it
0: i remember years ago i was in dc and i was arguing with some people and the woman i was arguing with about the iraq war said that bush started the war because he had nothing better to do and i remember we had like this huge.
2: <laughs> <just> <laughs> so, it was, so it was boredom <laughs> it was like, like if, if he'd had a slinky or if, if he'd had better like facebook <laughs> had, had been around at the time we wouldn't have invaded iraq you know, Snapchat could have saved a lot of lives. Uh, but at the
0: time, I, I jumped in with both feet. I'm, and today, I'd be, I would do what you advise and just roll my
2: eyes and move on to the next subject. But... Uh, <laughs>
0: You know, one of the things that
2: I'll say there, there are a couple of very easy coping mechanisms that you can do, or I shouldn't say coping mechanisms. There, there are um, just sort of ways you can frame that. Where, if if you're getting like like I I got into a conversation of picking on people on the left, but one of my friends is a Ivy League educated Trump supporter who lives in Los Angeles and is very much a Phyllis Schlafly type um, social conservative. Uh, and uh, we got into conversation about legalizing marijuana. I don't smoke pot, but I think you and your listeners should. Uh, I think just in general it tends to make everybody a little bit more chill. And I definitely think it should be legal. And she thinks it should be illegal, and staunchly so, and supports Jeff Sessions and you know locking people up and and you know bombing plantations or whatever. Uh, and and after after we kind of sparred for a while, I went, "What evidence would you need to come around to my position? Like, what what can I show you that would would?" would falsify your position. Mm-hmm. And she went, uh, there's nothing you could show me. Nope. And I went, okay, well, right. that's it then. I'm like, checking. we don't really, really need to, I, I feel like I've got your view and I, you've, you've communicated. We're no longer actually exchanging ideas. We're just kind of shouting at each other and like, well, okay, let's just talk about Star Trek.
0: Yeah. Let's ask for the check and move on from there. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I've seen your work do over and again is take very intellectual issues, economic principles, you know, stuff you don't get in the mainstream media as far as talking points and then make it absurdly silly. I, I'm I'm going to assume <laughs> that that there's a method to your madness, and you want to break these things down for the layman. But maybe I want to maybe drill a
2: little deeper and, and get your specific thoughts on on that part of your comedy. Sure, uh, and thank you. I'm very flattered by that because uh, that that implies that I, I grasp the economic policies that I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and I'm just I'm, an assumption I'm, on my part. Yeah, I'm thrilled. <laughs> uh, 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 yes, I know that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, I mean, kind of my personal credo um, in terms of the comedy that I've now been doing for a decade is make people laugh, make people think um, I, I I I would primarily like to entertain, but it's very good if I can include some kind of substantial element to that, be that philosophical or educational. And uh, uh, one of the things that I have attempted to get uh, proficient at as a writer is to take complex ideas and figure out a way to succinctly communicate them to people. Um, that's something that I had to do on a regular basis when I was working at Fox business because I was writing the teleprompter for Kennedy. Uh, and if something, you know, if something came in about, I don't know, a- a aerial drone laws, you know, in, in Northeast United States, you know, you, you had to figure out a way to do that succinctly. You couldn't just copy and paste a Wikipedia article. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also think that it, um, hum- humor is fantastic in that, uh, it, it does two things. One, um, People don't tend to understand, and particularly don't tend to memorize things in an encyclopedic form. We don't. We don't think like Wikipedia articles. We we think mythologically. That's one of the reasons that cultures have myths is to transmit knowledge because it's a lot easier to remember a story. Um, so if I do, um, if if we're talking about minimum wage and I I bring in robots and and have you know a sequence where I am killed by an android. Ah uh, that that is easier to to kind of get sticky with the human consciousness than if I were just you know rambling off numbers and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll say uh, and i'm this I'm borrowing a page from a very talented comedian named Chris Bliss when I say this. Uh, but uh, humor is a a fantastic learning tool in that uh, it temporarily drops a lot of the defenses that all of us have. so when when we get into these aforementioned arguments neurologically uh, if if we're we're now fighting about uh, I, I don't know um uh, whether or not we should privatize social security. And I'm gung-ho because I, I don't want Dick Cheney or, <laughs> or Trump to control my retirement plan. I'd rather handle that myself. Uh, and the other person you know, wants to um, uh, do, do whatever Denmark's doing. Uh, <laughs> is, is we, as we start to argue, we, we are going to, um, without knowing it, we're going to produce adrenaline. And the second that you produce adrenaline, you're, you are now far less receptive to any idea. Uh, conversely, if I am telling a joke and I make you laugh. You get a spurt of um, maybe epinephrine, but you get dopamine. In other words, you get happy chemicals. And I, I have seen this time and time again, and I love it. When I uh, I, I do a lot of um, I do a lot of stand up, and I either do observational stand up or I do uh, political comedy. And I, I tend to get paid better for political comedy. And I make fun of everybody. I make fun of the libertarians and the, and the Democrats and the, uh, and the Republicans. But one of the lines that I have is I say. Um, I really like how open minded liberals are about things they already agree with. Mm And it tends to get a really good laugh, including from the Democrats in the room, um, who, who, because it's a joke, they'll walk with me for the you know 20, 20 seconds that it took to, to say that. Now, they may not leave and go, boy, he's right. We should be more legitimately open-minded. But there, there has now been a, a thought that's crossed that threshold. Uh, and, and humor is very good at that. Um, the, the, the Daily Show, I think Colbert is brilliant. I love I love Steve Colbert. Uh, and, uh, and Steve Colbert, uh, particularly with the Colbert Report, was just so much fun. That you were willing to to walk with him on whatever ideological sprint he was going to do, uh, because it was going to be a blast. Mm-hmm. And when you come out of that, um, you tend to have, if not a changed opinion, you have a broader understanding of the of the field itself, which is exactly what I want to do yeah. with things like minimum wage, with uh, um, relative growth versus actual growth, with uh, protectionism, things like that. Uh, I I I would. I want people to understand both sides of the issue and just understand the terms they're using. Um, and then if I can teach them, like a fundamental economic concept, uh, you know, like actual growth or relative growth or, or or something like that, then then all the better.
0: Great. We're talking with Andrew Heaton, comedian, stand-up comic, author of books like "Laughter Is Better Than Communism." One thing I want to ask you about is the Trump factor. And at this point, is there any way to actually approach Trump as a comic concept without Going into the orange skin and the crazy hair and and the the Twitter comments, I I feel like you know after the after Bill Clinton's escapades, I feel like all the Clinton is Randy stuff was really tired, and then even the yeah. George Bush is dumb shtick that got old yeah. fast. I think everything about Trump to me comedically seems almost moldy at this point. Like I've heard it all. What's your take yeah. on Trump humor? Is there a way to kind of make it fresh and exciting, or is it just we're gonna do this for the next two to six years?
2: I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's it's been a it's been a mixed bag for those of us in the in the political satire community. I was like recently, Patrick Stewart uh, said he's going to reprise the role of uh, John Luke Picard, and uh, and if you if you read the statement, um, it was something like these troubled times when we are so polarized. I believe it's important to have a leadership figure that can rally people. And I was like, oh wait a minute, so. Like if the Trump campaign in 2016 had said, hey, if you elect us, Captain Picard comes back, <laughs> uh, I would have been like, ooh, I, that's tough. I, I'm planning to vote for Gary Johnson, but Gary Johnson's not going to bring back any Star Trek characters. Uh, so there's been a little good. But I would say for the most part, I think your, your analysis is spot on. Um, Trump is not good for political satire in a variety of ways. I mean just, just from, a, um, from a fairly clinical level, one of the tools you want to use in, in comedy is that of heightening. Um, and it's very difficult to heighten something that is a walking onion headline. If if you know if Trump begins the day at five o'clock in the morning by saying, uh, uh, "I don't know what the color chartreuse is, but I hate it, and we should ban the color chartreuse," and if if Rosie O'Donnell wears it, I will hang her from a tree. Like you you read that, and you're like, I don't know. We're we're starting off so far here um, that it's that it's crazy. Uh, and then the other thing, too, is I, I do think it, it invites a certain level of, uh, uh, gosh, laziness from a lot of other otherwise very talented comedy writers um, that would would be putting their faculties to better things. Uh, I'm tired of him. I, I don't like dealing with it. Uh, so so in, in the projects that I'm working on right now, he has a pretty limited role. Um, and, uh, and I kind of, if, if people want to talk about him, I'm like, you know, I probably agree with whatever your criticism of him is. I mean, I, like, I, I'm, you know, I'm glad that he's deregulating stuff and I, I tend to like his court picks, but otherwise I don't like the guy. Uh, but I, I think the trick is to, to try and get more creative, um, and, uh, to, to look at other things. Uh, like one of the, one of the projects that I'm working on is it's going to be a, a online web series. It's going to be a comedy show. So people, if they, if they watch mostly weekly, they're going to love this. Uh, but rather than doing, um, one rather than bouncing off the news cycle which is whatever Trump tweeted it's going to be more looking at um looking at local stuff and then using that as an emblematic subject for something else there's a really long way of saying uh, that if someone gets drunk in Florida and robs a taco truck naked i will talk about that but then i'll get into beer law uh, <laughs> and things like that i'll I'll talk about you know uh, open carry for for uh, you know for alcohol or or the ridiculous absurd liquor distribution systems in most states where there's a, a Soviet type um, distributor, but um, that, there's a way that you can do that with the news and be funny and communicate these things. And I, I think, I think Trump is pretty much a thing to sidestep. And he's also incredibly polarizing. which, which for those of us that are of a moderate disposition is not a lot of fun. It would have been very easy for me. Um, if, uh, and I, I think we can all agree in the 2016 election, the two most important factors were what's best for Andrew Heaton's career. And <laughs> will we get Captain Picard back? Uh, and, uh, uh, they're tough because it would have been easier for me, I'll say, as a humorist, if Hillary Clinton had come on, uh, because one, she's a lot more sedate, and so it's easier to heighten stuff that she does. Uh, but two, um, if you're if you're not a Trump fan and you're not a, a progressive Democrat, you're in a an odd no man's land that is very populous but doesn't have um, a lot of speakers currently, uh, because the the current landscape tends to be, do you like Trump or not? Uh, But but if you if you're not in the Trump camp, then it's it's you're a little bit more nomadic. Uh, whereas if Hillary had done it, I mean, like my, myself, uh, everyone at Reason was getting their, their you know, their file folders out from the 90s of everything <laughs> they'd written about Hillary Clinton. I mean, we were just going to go on autopilot for a year and a half and just, you know, go to Bermuda and repost things. Uh, and uh, and instead we got Trump. So, yeah, he, he's definitely a, a, I would say, a difficulty um, for the comedy scene. I don't think helping it. But, again, hopefully Captain Picard will be the, the good thing that comes out, comes out of this experience. That's right. Uh, one last question.
0: I think what we're seeing in comedy, and I you've alluded to some names that I think I'm more critical of than you are, but you're deeply invested and are a humorist by trade, so I think your opinion often trumps mine. But I see comedy today often avoiding the laugh, avoiding the punchline, getting serious, getting sober. Yeah. There was even a Netflix special, and I'm forgetting the comedian's name, and it was half funny and then became sort of this TED Talk, and people were rallying around and saying, maybe this isn't the time for humor. Things are so sober uh. and serious. Oh, had, had, I had... I have to think that makes your head spin but maybe yes. you can, you can you can elaborate <laughs> better on the head spinning because i'm being uh, less articulate
2: you know there, there was a there was a, a young lady that um i saw do stand-up i was doing a show and she was she was also doing stand-up and she billed herself as a as a political satirist um and at one point she said uh you know i do political comedy because it's easier to get clapping than it is to get laughter which is a great joke like mm-hmm. i like i I'm, I'm quite impressed with her it's it's a very salient observation it's e- it's so much easier to get um, to get applause than it is to get laughter. Laughter you've got to work for. It. You've you've got to figure out a punchline. Um, you might have to find weird angles. Applause, you just say what what your team thinks. Uh, and, and, you know, like, like two years ago, I, like this is two year 2016, I'm in New York and, you know, in, in some dank comedy basement and some guy goes, you know, I know it's not popular to say this, but I think George W. Bush was a bad president. I'm hmm. like, wow, well done. What a, what a, what a brave man you are, <laughs> you know, in 20, in 2016 to criticize George W. Bush in Manhattan. Uh, did security rush to his side to make sure he wasn't injured or wounded? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Uh, so it, it's, um. Uh, I think there's a lot of that. I I don't think that comedy. I I think if you want to put in a substantive point in comedy, that's fine. And and depending on the format you're doing, uh, like like John Oliver is a a comedy show that it has an educational component to it, uh, and that's part of it, and that that's fine. It would it would be odd if he if he did shows there were only jokes that were like uh you know Jimmy Fallon openers that were just kind of fluff, right? Uh, but at the same time, I, I think it's always tempting to go for applause because you get immediate affirmation and you tap into. Um, This Pleistine tribal instinct that I I see causing nothing but trouble. Um, So I I think the the humor is is equally important. And if anything else, it it can allow us to temporarily put aside our weapons and and be on the same team for a moment, which is which is great. Uh, I'll, I'll also add, while I am not a Trump fan. And there are many things that I'm worried about in our current society, about the polarization occurring, about, you know, traditional institutions being chipped away, about, you know, the, the kind of mammoth hatred, that's swelling. There are things that I'm worried about. We're still living in a pretty cool era. Uh, you know, like St- Steven Pinker, um, you know, talks about the stuff about how there's, you know, like li- global literacy is at like 90 percent right now. That's crazy. Like that's like, you know, for, for most of human history, everyone lived in abject poverty uh, and was beaten to death with a rock by some thug. And and now like it's we're there's there's problems but we're doing well and I, I think the the cultural component of anti-Trumpism is is oftentimes seriously overreacting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a um, whole whole other kettle, but I'm i really getting into Buddhism and I'll, I'll probably convert here in the next couple of months. And I was at a zendo in Austin and after meditation we we're just kind of chatting and this one guy went, you know I know we're supposed to um we're supposed to you know, try and communicate goodwill towards everyone in the universe, including people that irk us. But I just, I, I just think that Stephen uh, Stephen Miller is such a vile human being, and he's <laughs> causing he's causing so much evil. And I just, I you know, I can't sleep at night knowing that these terrible things are happening with immigration. It's, it's, and I and I didn't say anything because I'm new, but I was like, where were you the last eight years? <laughs> like, did you did you think that immigration was was significantly different? Like, I'm I'm not going to say that it was. Uh, the same, but like, you know, President Obama was deporting a lot of people, but, the, but there was this sort of, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's an overblown kind of tribal reaction to it. Um, If, if you read uh, Jonah Goldberg's latest book, Suicide of the West, I think he hits the nail on the head that uh, it's it, we're, we're almost repeating this sort of. 17th century English attitude of my God, there's a Protestant on the on the throne. That can't be right. We're a Catholic <laughs> nation. Uh, you know, when a Catholic comes in and it's like, oh, my my entire universe no longer makes sense. The the king has to be Protestant. Uh, and uh, uh, in in this particular equation, a bunch of us are Jewish. And we're like, well, we're not, <laughs> you know, we're not <laughs> just don't, you know, just don't kill us and let us do stuff. Like just let us have free markets and, and you know, free speech and we're okay. Um, uh, so I, 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 to, to return to your earlier point, um, I, I do not think comedy should be, you know, stalled. The, the only, th- the only thing that I would, um, that I, that I would say is, is probably a healthy response to the current environment that I'm seeing in comedy is that, uh, if, if we were to h- jump in the wayback machine to let's say 40 years ago, um, the American culture itself, um, absent the '60s, was was a pretty safe space. Uh, if you were watching TV, if you were if you were going to a, a play, that was not apt to be super political, and you weren't apt to be confronted by things that you found challenging. And stand up comedy was you went to stand up comedy to be challenged by George Carlin and by Richard Pryor uh, and and all these guys. Uh, and now we're kind of inverting that to where the the day to day culture that you and I are walking through is a Kind of um, intellectually armed place to be that involves a lot of a lot of confrontation and a lot of uh, difficult things, and so I, I think stand-up might um, begin to become the safe place to go. That we we will we will like Jim Gaffigan for telling mm. us jokes about hot dogs, and that's fine. I, I think that's absolutely fine. But I, I think the problem would be to try and make comedy yet another extension of the war you know, between good and evil, and we're going to weaponize it, and I, I, I think that would be a bad call. Yes, I think you're predicting a Gallagher comeback, so I'm very excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We First Captain Picard, and we'll conclude <laughs> it with Gallagher, and that will be why we build a Trump monument. Next time I talk to you, you
0: can going to be wearing a red hat for those two reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew, for joining the HitCast. Go to MightyHeaton.com and sign up for Andrew's newsletter. That's where you're going to find out about all his different pod projects. There's Lots of stuff in the hopper. It's coming soon, and he will keep you abreast of it. He's also a great stand comedian, and the fact that you are not hosting a late-night talk show across the nation is a crime against humanity, but hopefully one day it will be fixed. (laughs) And uh, love your stuff, and keep
2: up the good work. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you.
0: Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out Hollywoodandtoto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter, at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. So he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for. And done Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called myhealthpolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael.
1: I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face and done.